The word of our Lord from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name is changed to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Look down at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give all of this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. Now moving to chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exultingly great, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, You have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And so the Lord said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed in the Lord And the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? In other words, I have a child. How am I going to inherit it? I'm old. And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And so when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. That's the first time we've heard of this deep, sleep falling upon someone since the deep sleep that fell upon Adam when Yahweh created Eve. Deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. They will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. 
Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces of the sacrifice. And on the same day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, (coughs) had come to the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness. And so Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God on the mountain. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a special treasure above all people, for all of the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. And so Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all of the people. Skip down to verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. When it came, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there, was, that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but do not let God speak with us, lest we die. So Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Now in chapter 24. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, for they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said, We will do, and we will be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the Lord, uh, the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone, the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his servant Joshua. And Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on the, on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the mountain of the cloud and went up onto the mountain. And Moses was in the mountain forty days and forty nights. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. We pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and to hear what you have for us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be your faithful children. Give us grace so that we might be yours, so we might know your presence, so that your image in us might be renewed. And we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. The nature of religion. Oh, what happened? Sorry about that. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. There we go. We're good. The nature. Oh. Oh. Jeremy, don't move. Stand right here. Don't move. Just right there. Don't move. All right. The nature of religion is to pursue understand and express reality that's what religion is all about what is real what is reality so religious ideas help us to order that reality in our minds it helps us to understand them it helps us to express those ideas of reality to others consequently everyone even every culture seems to be innately religious. You show me an irreligious man and I'll show you a religious one because he has ideas about what reality is. The limits to reality. Whether or not there is a God. If so, how many? What he's like. Andrew shared with you last Sunday about the religious context of the ancient Near East, which is the religious backdrop of the Old Testament. The religious setting into which the Lord was speaking and revealing himself. Why does God reveal himself to his people to begin with? That's an important question. Why does he disclose himself? Why does he make himself known? Well, in order to be with his people. I think that gets us to, yep. In order to be with them. So that his image bearers 
might know Him and enjoy His presence. He loves us so much. You might even say that He likes us so much. He wants to be with us. Well then, how does He reveal Himself to us? That's an important question. But before we address that question, let's think about the nature of revelation itself. Revelation requires that God makes himself known to us from the outside in. He is not a part of this world. He is immaterial. He is pure spirit. He is not a part of his creation. Creation is separate. He is transcendent to it. And so if God is to be known, he must make himself known. And so God revelation is about God on the outside of the created world stepping into it and revealing himself to it. That's far different than us discovering him from the inside out. And so biblical revelation is not about us conjecturing about God or imposing our ideas upon him. In fact, Israel's own self-testimony is they weren't even looking for him. Abram wasn't looking for a new God to serve. He was doing quite well in a pagan land, surrounded by all the pagan deities. And all of a sudden, one day, this God, Yahweh, comes to Abram and says, I'll give you a land, I'll give you a family, and I'll give you a name that will last forever. How about it? And Abram was foolish enough to say, that sounds better than what I have here. God chose to reveal himself to us. And apart from that, we could never know him. Unless he discloses himself, we can't see him. So why didn't God use the religious ideas of that day? Quite simply, because they were so broken and so flawed. They came with too much baggage. The religious context of the ancient Near East was too pagan. It was, it was too messed up. This baggage was damaged and it was also damaging. Therefore, it was much of what the Lord was trying to get out of the minds of His people. And so instead what Yahweh uses is something that is a familiar political idea and a familiar cultural institution. He revealed himself to them by inviting them into a holy relationship. A relationship that is unlike any other relationship. He cuts a covenant with them. Even at his own expense, he makes this covenant. You see it very clearly in um, chapter 15 of Genesis, which we read at length. Abram says, how am I going to know that you're going to be good on your promises, Lord? I still don't have a child. Someone living in my house, a basement dweller, is going to inherit all that I have because I have no son. I have no heir. The only heir that I could leave my fortunes to, the only heir that could inherit this land that you've promised me is not even my child. 
And so the Lord says, I want you to do something that is that you're going to recognize immediately. I want you to bring these animals and I want you to sacrifice them and I want you to split them and I want you to create a path for us to walk through. And so Abram offers the sacrifice. He puts the halves of the animals on the side of an aisle. And in the ancient world, the two parties that are making that covenant together would have walked through Promising various responsibilities to one another. Abram falls asleep after he shoot off the vultures. Get out of here. Abram falls asleep. That deep sleep falls upon him. And it is Yahweh himself who passes through the cut sacrifice. Binding himself to Abram. Essentially saying, if I'm not good on my promise, may this be done to me. God is revealing to his people his consistent holy character by entering into covenant with them. The, the gods of the ancient Near East never made covenants with their people. Because to step into a covenant means to promise faithfulness. And the gods of the ancient Near East were anything but faithful. They changed their minds like they changed their socks. They probably wore socks because they were just like us. The gods of the ancient Near East were, were just like us. All the gods of the world, they're just like us. They're just bigger than us, more powerful than us, with less limits than us. They can do what they want. They lie to one another, cheat on one another, betray one another. They change their minds. One day their favorite color is green. The next day their favorite color is orange and you'd better get with the program and offer them green things or orange things based upon their whims. And so there was no covenantal relationship between the gods of the ancient world and the peop their people. It was simply you try to serve the God nearest you to keep Him happy. To keep everything working as it ought. And so God reveals Himself to His people through cutting a covenant. Revealing Himself to them as being consistent, faithful, having integrity, of having one moral purity. So why does he cut a covenant with them? Well, he cuts a covenant with them to establish and develop a relationship of love and trust. Too often, too many of us who bear the name Christian have the false idea in mind that the Old Testament was about salvation by keeping the law and obeying commandments. And that the New Testament is about salvation by grace. What's wrong with this idea is that it assumes that anyone anywhere at any time could save himself by being good enough by being strong-willed enough by being obedient enough and that's never how salvation was offered to God's people that's simply wrong it's impossible 
It's made explicitly clear that this is impossible by the epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament, Paul's epistles to the Romans and the Galatians. That's what he's, he's challenging to the Galatians. You think you're going to save yourself? You think you're going to purify yourself? It really, all throughout the Old and New Testaments, God is telling his people that they simply cannot save themselves. Even if he gives them a list of ten things to make sure that they do, they don't do them. But there's another problem with this false assumption about the Old Testament being about saving ourselves by obedience and the New Testament about God saving us by grace. It leads us to believe that the Old Testament isn't about the grace of God, which is also entirely wrong. The Old Testament is filled with the grace of God. You can't understand Abraham apart from grace. You can't understand Moses apart from grace. You can't understand Israel. You can't understand even creation itself apart from the grace of God. His goodness and Him extending His life and His love to His people. Grace is what the exodus from Egypt was all about. You're in bondage, serving people as your masters, and God comes along and says, pack your bags, we're leaving. We're going back to the promised land. Why? Because you're mine. Come on. Grace is what the divine image in us, in creation, as God's people is all about. He created us to know Him and to love Him, to enjoy Him. If most of us have a faulty understanding of what the Old Testament is all about, let's think about specifically what the Old Testament is about. And I want to tell you here that Testament and Covenant are interchangeable terms. And so when I'm talking about the Old Testament, yes, I'm typically talking about the books of the Old Testament. But in a general sense, I'm also referring to the old covenant that God made with His people. And it really served three purposes. Oh, hang on a second. There we go. Nope. There we go. All right. We'll go back, I promise, Bill. So there are three basic intentions of the, of the old covenant. It was given to God's people to reveal... His character to them. To reveal the character of Yahweh to His people. He invites them into covenant so that they can get to know Him. So that they can see what He's like. So that they can see that He is faithful and consistent. He has moral integrity. How do you get to know somebody? By entering into a relationship with them. But it was also intended to reveal the seriousness of living in covenant with Him. He is a holy God. He is jealous of His people. If you are to be His, if you are to be with Him, you had better be prepared. Oftentimes we look at God in the Old Testament and think, my goodness, He's so mean and angry and vengeful. He's mean and angry and vengeful to His people. People who have freely entered into covenant with Him. People who have said with blood dripping down their faces, we will do 
everything that Yahweh requires of us, of course we'll be faithful to Him. He has delivered us. He has rescued us. We pledge ourselves to Him irrevocably. Irrevocably. However you want to pronounce it. And so God is revealing to His people with the, with the smoke and the darkness and, and the blood and sacrifices. He is revealing to them in the thunderings and the lightnings that it is a serious thing to step into covenantal relationship with Him. Being His people is not a game. It's not a hobby. And it certainly isn't a power play where we'll do something so that we get our way. Too often, humanity throughout time, and especially today, think of a relationship with God as a game or a hobby. It's just something we do. It's something that enhances our life, makes life a little bit more fulfilling. And so maybe we do that until it's not so fulfilling or until it requires too much of us. The covenant was also given to reveal the inability of the human heart to love Yahweh faithfully. It was given kind of as a mirror for us, for us to see the depths of our problem. The extent of the damage of sin. That even when we pledge, we will be yours, Yahweh, faithfully and forever only days pass before we're dancing around a golden calf saying this is the Lord who's brought us out of Egypt apparently they forgot about that second command make no graven images don't serve them don't worship them There were three great successes of the Old Covenant. It clearly did communicate the character of Yahweh to His people. They had a very firm and founded understanding of what God was like. He is holy. He is always faithful. It also vividly showed the profound disorder of the human heart and life. When you reach the end of the Old Testament, you find Israel perfectly understanding that there is a principle within them. There is something within the human heart that is contrary to the will of God. That even though it desires to serve Yahweh, just won't. And that disorder of heart bleeds out into a disorder throughout life. It affects all of our relations, it affects all of our doings. As, um, 
the church father of St. Augustine said, I fought against myself and I tore myself to pieces. The Old Covenant shows us that very clearly. But it did something else. It began to nurture a desire for Yahweh to reorder both heart and life. It started casting shadows out before it. It started planting seeds along the way. It started giving us ideas and suspicions even expectations. Certainly God's going to put His creation back together. Certainly God's not going to leave us like this. Certainly God who brought us into covenant is going to fix in us what keeps breaking that covenant. As Dr. Oswald puts it, the Old Testament shows us the, transf- the transformation that God intends to bring about in the human heart. And the New Testament shows us what God has done to make that transformation possible. We need Yahweh to undo the damage of sin, to reorder our hearts and lives through His presence, to remake us as His people so that we might know and love Him rightly. And the great promise of the Old Testament is that He can undo our brokenness and can surely fix us. The great and sobering realization with which we are confronted in the Old Testament is that we are terribly broken and cannot fix ourselves. You find our need in various sections of the Old Testament literature. You see it in the pattern of sin that you encounter in the Judges. This spiraling of sin where we are restored by Yahweh, we serve Him, we go after false gods, we break His covenant, we're oppressed by other people, and then we cry out to God, Lord, save us, save us from our enemies, and He comes along surely and rescues us yet again. You see this pattern of sin in Abram's life as the, I mean immediately after Genesis chapter 15 when when Yahweh cuts the covenant with him, the very next chapter is when Abram gets the idea of hey, if God's not going to make good on his promise, maybe he need just needs us to help him. So Sarah says, "Hey, I've got a servant Hagar. You can have a child with her." And hey, voila. Yahweh's made good on His promises. You see it in Israel. As I already mentioned, just days after cutting covenant with Yahweh, they're dancing around the golden calf. You see the longing a new heart in the pleas of the Psalms deliver us from our enemies the greatest of our enemies being ourselves the twistedness of our heart the prophet Jeremiah the heart is deceptively wicked who can know it You see our need in the indictments and the promises of the prophets. See, the covenant was primarily concerned with showing us the source of our need, the nature of our need, and the extent of our need. We call it the old covenant, and it did its job well. Through the prophets, Yahweh promises people a new covenant, 
not because the old one was bad or didn't work, but precisely because it was good and did work. The old covenant was not a way for people to earn a relationship with Yahweh or a ticket to heaven. It was an expression of that relationship with Yahweh, a relationship of grace, and it served as a mirror into the human heart. It was like a diagnosis and a prognosis. The, co- the new covenant is the surgery and treatment itself. You might say that the old covenant was wildly good at its job. It showed us Yahweh and it showed us ourselves. Its job was to get us to Romans chapter 6 and 7. The new covenant will get us beyond it. In Romans 6 and 7, Paul begins by saying, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer is, God forbid it. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And he goes on to talk about how what we give ourselves to, we become slaves of. Whether we give ourselves to sin or whether we give ourselves to God in righteousness. We either serve our sin or we serve our Savior. We either serve our brokenness and our expressions of that brokenness, or we serve the one who has fixed that brokenness and yield ourselves to Him. And so He implores them, give yourselves to God, for you died with Christ. Shall we continue in sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? And He says, God forbid it. He says we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God through Christ. And he reminds us the wages of sin is always death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then he moves on into Romans chapter 7. And he talks about the advantages of the law. In, chapter, in verse 12, he says, The law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death in me? And he says, Certainly not, but sin, so that it might appear as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, glaringly obvious that we have a problem. When you're given the law, and you want to follow the law, but you don't follow the law, you realize there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Not with the law itself. We know the law is of the Spirit, but I am carnal. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And then Paul begins this this telling of a situation that is not, that is not, current Paul. It is Paul reflecting upon living under that old covenant. Wanting to serve God but not being able to. He says, what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not do. But what I hate, I find myself doing. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree that the law is good. I don't I don't want to break the law. The law is good. I want to obey God. I want to follow Him. I want to be obedient to Him. 
I want to do right and I can't. He says, no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, this is not post-Christ Paul. This is pre-Christ Paul. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, and the flesh again is not a physical body. The flesh here is that principle within us that I will do what I want. And sometimes that's good. I will be righteous because I'll make myself righteous. But that, that principle is not of God. He says, in my flesh nothing good dwells, for to the will is present with me, but how to perform it I cannot find. The good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will to do, that is what I do. If I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law, another principle in my members, warring against the law of my mind, what I know to do, what I know I want to do. Bring me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And then he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it gives us a glimpse of the promise of the new covenant. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. In chapter 80, then goes into what life is like when we have been set free by Christ. We've been set free by being brought into the new covenant of God's grace. The old covenant is all about God's grace. It's all about God revealing Himself to us. It's all about God making Himself known to us and making known to us the extent of our problem, the reality that even when we want to follow Yahweh, we don't because there's something broken and fundamentally wrong within the human heart. And in the new covenant, God will promise us a new heart. He will begin that inner work of transforming us from the inside out. It's a good place to be when we cry out to God, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Not because that's a good place to stay. Not because it's a good place to waller. But because that's a good realization to come to. That I need to be set free. And praise God in Christ, we can be set free. The old covenant was all about bringing God's people to that realization of their great need for Him. And it did its job well. May the cry of our hearts always be to know God more and to be completely 
and freely his. That he would set us free from those things that bind us. That he would restore us in his grace. To know him and to love him and to serve him faithfully. And so he does what any good doctor would do. He confronts the problem. Let's pray.